This morning, scripture readings from the book of Daniel, chapter 1, verses 1 through 21. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure of put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names, to Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord the king who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the official priests had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food, and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the other young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in the whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Good morning. It's uh, great to be with you guys. It's great to have a chance to share this morning. And, um, you know, LMCC has been a big part of our journey into the city, and we really appreciate the warm welcome we've had here. We've enjoyed being part of a community group. And, um, you know, we're all going to find out how, how Ryan's genius plan of asking me to preach is going to turn out right now. And, uh, but it's, it's just it's great to be here. And... Um, one of the things that I appreciate about the way Ryan preaches is he tells us in advance everything that he's going to tell us. You know, and he goes through and he says, I'm going to tell you this, and I'm going to tell you this, and I'm going to tell you this. And he always delivers. Well, I have commitment issues. I'm not going to do that this morning. Um, 
I'm just going to, I'm going to pose a question, and I hope that through the course of our time together as we think about Daniel, that it answers that question. The question is this, how do we thrive in a place like this? That's the question. How do we thrive in a place like this? And uh, so we're going to turn to Daniel, and you know, he's, he's one of the greatest characters of all time. Last week we talked about Peter, Rich Rivera from the Bronx was here. And Peter's story really answers, you know, how do we recover from a, a, a total fail in our lives? And so Rich dove into that this week. But we're going we're gonna to look at Daniel this morning and, and how he answers this question, you know, how do I thrive in a place like this? And so um, the story of Daniel is found in the book in the Bible that bears his name. It's part of what we call the Old Testament, the first part of the Bible. And it's a short book. He's called one of the minor prophets because his book is small. You know, go figure. And uh, he, he, but he, he plays large in our collective imagination because we talk about Daniel and the what the lion's den. You know, and we still talk about being in a lion's den. It's a situation where we're grossly outnumbered. We're the underdog, and and you know it doesn't look very good. And so we're, we're actually going to talk about that story uh, the next time I get to preach, if I get to preach next time, uh, which is slated for August. And because uh, we want to come back to Daniel, it's a rich story. But t- today we're going to go back. We're going to focus on the beginning of his life, Daniel chapter one. And, and the first thing we see about him is, is, and I just summarize it this way: Daniel ends up living as an exile in the capital of the empire. He ends up living as an exile in the capital of the empire. And um, and we just heard, we just we just listened to chapter one and the whole thing, and and so. This king, Nebuchadnezzar, from the empire of Babylon, which was the superpower of its day, conquered this little Jewish nation. It was, it was really just half of the original Israelite kingdom called Judah. That was Daniel's homeland. And uh, to add sort of insult to injury, this is the way they did it back then. The victor hauled away all the, all the, all the defeated country's gods and put them in their temple. It's kind of a way to say, our god's bigger than your god, kind of dynamic. Uh, to ancient warfare and ancient culture. And so this is what happened to Daniel. His, probably, he's probably about 12 to 15 years of age. His country is defeated militarily, which you know, for most of us is very hard to imagine. And uh, he's, his family, if he was from a noble family, which it sounds like he may have been, his family may have been killed, his parents and uncles and aunts and those types of folks. And he's taken away to this foreign country, and he's given a new name, which is just another way to say, we own you now. And he's put into preparation for the service of the king. And he's put into this three-year training program, not unlike some of you have gone through as analysts, you know, analyst interns, kind of the same idea. And, uh, you know, it says that the king was looking for young men without any physical defect, handsome. Some of you are looking for young men like that, I think. Um, and they're qualified to, to, for all the understanding and learning that's going to take place to enter into the king's service. So really, handsome Ivy Leaguers is what King Nebuchadnezzar was looking for. And, you know, that was Daniel. So he's gone through this tremendous amount of loss, but he's also good-looking and very, very capable young man. And, and he goes through this experience. And so the way I would summarize that is he, he, is, uh, he is taken into exile in what was the, the, the global capital of its day, the center of the superpower of its day. And so I want, I want to pause there and draw some parallels to us, because I'd like to suggest that um, living in New York is not dissimilar to living in Babylon. I would like to suggest that New York City is, in many ways, the capital of the empire of the day, and uh, that there's, an, there's a parallel even to the exile experience. And I'll take those two in turn. 
And, uh, you know, you could really draw analogies of empire with any situation where there's a very demanding culture, and, you know, if, if you don't comply, you're, you're kicked out or you're, you're ruined. And some of our families are actually that way. Some small towns are that way. Some businesses are that way. But on like the ultimate scale uh, in the world today, uh, many would argue that New York City is really, really the center of Western culture. And there's no one single person that's, that's named the dictator of this of this culture, although some of us would probably like to nominate some folks from time to time. But it's, it's, it's really the center of two big ideas that really shape the world. One is liberal democracy, and the other is free market capitalism. And you guys know most of this stuff, probably. But just the idea of liberal democracy is that my individual freedom, the freedom to do whatever I want whenever I want, is the highest good. And free market capitalism really embraces the idea that you just can never really have too much money. There's just not... You know, there just isn't. There's not, there's not too many problems in your life that either can't be solved or at least made a lot less of a problem without money. And these two things all come together here uh, in the city with, with the financial sector, with the arts sector, with the media. With all, it's just it's a center of global influence and power. And there's lots of studies. Uh, A.T. Kearney is the one that, that does. They come out every year, this objective measure of influential places. And New York is always at the top. Uh, several about two months ago, Ryan was talking about Esther, and she was actually in the same capital city or near the same empire, a related empire that Daniel was. And she said she lived in the palace. And New York is kind of like if the world is a kingdom, New York is a palace. It's really that same idea. And so, you know, if you love New York, you're like, yeah, I know, that's why I'm here. Uh, if you're not sure you love New York, you're like, oh, okay, that's interesting. But so anyway, my 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 point or my argument is that there's there's a very empire like. Uh, dynamic to living in the city, and that's why it's called the Empire State, of course. <laughs> Actually, that goes back to George Washington, but we'll skip the history lesson uh, for now. So there's, there's this empire-like quality to New York, but I also want to suggest to you that living here is a little bit like living in exile. And if you live in exile, the kind of fundamental defining reality of, of exile is this feeling that home is somewhere else. Home is not here. Home is somewhere else. And maybe some of you are lifelong New Yorkers. You were born here. You're staying here. There's like absolutely no question about it. Or you've come and you've been here for a while and you love it and you know you're going to stay. And you've, you've figured out the business model for you to stay. You know, but probably for a number of us, there's a question mark about how long we'll stay in New York. In fact, this is one of the things that, that I learned as I looked at moving into the city and coming here as I talked to people. It's one of the, as I'm relatively, I'm a relative newcomer. In fact, sometimes I refer to myself as a suburban immigrant. So I come from the suburbs. And um, but there's a sense of temporary here that I'm not sure I've observed in other places. One of, my, one, of, one of the friends I met in my networking process and looking for work in the city said, one of the things you need to know about New York is that everybody has one foot out the door. And uh, I found another statistic that said the average time that a person lives in New York City is a year and a half. And... Um, those anecdotes aside, most of us have conversations about how long we're going to stay in the city. It's just a, it's a dinner, it's a topic of dinner conversation. It's, it's a reality, and, and it's just, there's, there's, this, um, there's this vibe of temporariness here that's very intense. I mean, everything's more intense here, but it's, it's part of the city. And, and if it's temporary for you, then there's always this question mark, is this home, will this be home? And that, that's, that's an experience of exile. How long will I stay here? And kind of related to that and, and connected to that, I'm sure, is just the intensity. The intensity.
Penn City of New York. I have a friend who, um, he's been my best friend for many, many years, and he was in town a week or so ago for business. He's lived in Atlanta, Phoenix, Denver, and Dallas. And he just said, he just, he was just like, this place is unbelievable. And, you know, he's, he's from the Northeast. I'm from outside of Philadelphia. We grew up there, but and we would come up to New York every now and then. But he came here on a business trip, and he, it was a really good business trip. There's so much opportunity. There's such a pace and intensity to the place that he, it just, it was palpable, the difference. And so there's a pace to this place, and there's a, part of the pace is, just, or part of the intensity is the pace, and part of it's the cost. And, you know, some of us are like, well, I can stay here, but I'm not sure if I want to. And some of us are saying, I want to stay here, but I'm not sure I can. And it just, it just feeds into that sense that, is this home, is this, I don't, we're always talking about it, we're always trying to figure it out. Uh, what's going to happen when, my, when I get, when I find out whether, how much my rent's going up next year? You know, it's, it's just always this constant churn. And I, so I think that there is, in some ways, if you imagine Daniel taken to this foreign place where he doesn't know anybody, doesn't know the language, doesn't know if he's going to make it in this education program, that, you know, am I going to really make it into the king's service or not, that, that, that sort of nagging feeling of temporary in the back of your mind, that's exile. And I think it's here as well. And it's here whether or not you're, where, wherever you are on the map spiritually, whether you're a person who has kind of come to a, a clear understanding of who Jesus is and the life he invites us to, or if you're here to explore that. It's, I think that's somewhat of a universal New York kind of experience. But the other dynamic of exile is for, for those of us, it's unique to those of us who have signed up for a life of faith in Christ. Because, you know, one of the things that Jesus invites us into is the idea that we're going to be part of something he calls the kingdom. And it's, it's kind of a, a counter-empire. It's another, it's another agenda, and it may sound brash to say it, but it's really God's agenda for life and the world and how it should be lived. And it, that's what he talked about all the time, over and over and over again. It says Jesus invited people to hear about and join in the, the truth and the power of the kingdom of God. And so if you're a person that's done that, if you've signed up for faith in Christ and you're going to sense a bit of a conflict between the empire of the city all around you and his empire or his kingdom. And there's some times when it really, it's amazing. It just aligns beautifully. I, you know, it's, it's very, it's, it's, it's a fairly shared value that we should take care of the poor and that we should provide opportunity for people to reach their potential, that we should fight injustice. And those are themes that you know, run throughout our, our culture and are concentrated here in New York City. And those all align with the kingdom of God. But then there's other aspects where there's, there's a conflict, and where there's tension. And for the unbridled pursuit and expression of yourself with, with no, no guardrails, no boundaries, is, that's, that kind of runs counter to the kingdom of God. And, um, is this going in and out? No, okay. Maybe this was going in and out. Sorry about that. Um, no, so if you're, if you're a follower of Christ and you're saying, I'm going to do it, you'll see things in the city that really actually kind of align with who God is and what he wants. And then you'll see things in the city that are completely opposed to who he is and what he wants. And you'll experience a tension internally around that. You'll experience it in your workplace. You'll experience it in your co-op or your apartment building. You'll, you'll, you'll just see it. You'll feel it. And so if, if you're aligned to God and what he's doing, there'll be things about the city you think are wonderful, wonderful and there'll be things you think are terrible. It creates this feeling of exile. Can this really be my home? Can I really just exhale and let my guard down and just be here? And so Daniel was in that kind of a setting. He was in that kind of a place. And maybe it's New York City, or maybe it's your, your workplace, or maybe it's your home. 
or maybe it's you're from some other kind of community, but you'll feel that tension if you're sensitive and real and you just allow your thoughts to run a little bit and reflect on what's going on around you. So the first answer to this question, how do we survive in a place like this, is we, know, we need to know what kind of place it is, that we live in exile, as exiles, in the capital of the empire. That's where we live. That's what it's like. And that can help us understand what the principles will need to be, or the rules, or the strategy will need to be if we know where we are. And that moves us forward to the answer at least the answer that we're going to look at this morning, because I want to tease out the same question in August when we come back to Daniel. But in uh, verse, well, it's in verse eight. If those, for those of you who um, have the text, but it's in. I'm trying to find it. Um, it's in the second paragraph on the back of your program, and it's really key to the whole morning. And it's, it actually becomes the key to Daniel's whole life. It says, but Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. Daniel resolved not to defile himself. And it's kind of like he's reached a a, a breaking point. He's been, his whole culture and community has been conquered by this foreign power. He's been taken to the capital. He's been given a new name. He's been put in this training program. And And in a sense, he's going along with all those things. He may not have had much of an alternative except to just be executed. But, um, you know, he's going along with it, but here he draws a line. And he says, here, here's my core strategy to figure out how to live in this place. I'm not going to let myself, I'm not going to defile myself. I'm not going to let myself become polluted. I'm not going to let a certain kind of spiritual contaminant get into the way I'm doing life here as an exile in the empire. And, and the example doesn't necessarily immediately make a lot of sense to us, because he says, I'm not going to eat the king's food or drink the king's wine. And, um, but some of the cultural history will help us figure that out. So it was very common in the ancient world for uh, wine and meat to have been used as part of the worship of, of various gods in the ancient context. And so they would toast their gods with, their, with wine, and they, the meat that they ate was often meat that was offered as a sacrifice the temple of a god. And so the wine and the meat were not just wine and meat, they were, they were symbols of the worship of the gods of the Babylonians. So what Daniel is saying is, I'm not going to allow, I'm not going to compromise my allegiance to the god of heaven, that's what, what they call the Hebrew god, the god of heaven. I'm not going to compromise my allegiance by even giving sort of an appearance of allegiance to these Babylonian gods. It was a contest of loyalty. It was a contest of loyalty. And, and Daniel says, I'm going to stay loyal to the God of the Hebrews. I'm going to be here. You can change my name. I'm going to, I'm going to work hard on the assignments I'm given and so forth and so on, but I'm, I'm not going to go that far. I'm not going to let myself be contaminated at the level of loyalty. My decision, my strategy for dealing with life in the empire, this uh, demanding culture that's always pushing me for more and more and more and more, is that I'll go along with it as much as I can, but at some points I'm going to draw a line. And the line that I'm discerning is a line where I would become defiled or become polluted, where I would compromise my allegiance to God. I would be defiled. And that causes problems in the story because you know, the, the person that's in charge of Daniel, you know, you're supposed to get the king's food. That's the best we have to offer. That's the best that Babylon has to offer. And um, 
So, you know, you, you read on and you see that Daniel makes, you know, God gives Daniel favor and Daniel makes a proposal. So we're going to do a test, we're going to do a beta run on a new diet, and it's a vegan diet. Some of you are very excited about that. And, um, you know, no meat or anything. And, you know, Daniel and his friends end up being very healthy at the end of that period, and it changes the whole you know, dietary regime for everybody in the King's Academy. And I'm sure there were some meat lovers that weren't too happy about that. But it's... Um, it all stems from this decision. I will not defile myself. I will not let myself be polluted or contaminated. I'm not going to let anything come into my life that's going to compromise my relationship with God. And so I, th- I think that that really is the essence of Daniel's story. It's that he makes this choice to stay loyal to God, even in a context where nobody around him even... You know, everybody around him thinks his God lost. He's going to still stay loyal to that God. So what does that mean for us? I mean, what does that look like for us? What does it look like to, to make this decision that we're not going to defile ourselves, that we're going to remove or stay away from the things that will block our relationship with God? You know, one of the, one of the paradigms that we can use to understand this is the whole idea of idols, it sounds like a very primitive thing. You know, you think of an idol, you think of a statue uh, in a primitive culture. But you know, the theme of idols goes through the Old and New Testaments in the Bible, and it really comes to represent anything in our lives that takes the place of the true God. An idol is anything in our lives that takes the place of the true God. That you know, that we look to for our security, for our identity, to give us, uh, to guarantee our future. And uh, in Tim Keller's book, Counterfeit Gods, he talks about three, money, sex, and power. And, you know, he says these are the things that we just, we cling to, to give us a sense of life and identity and security and joy. And when we do that with them, they kind of take on a life of their own. And the interesting thing about idols, and those aren't the only ones, money, sex, and power, they're probably the top, top three. And, you know, there's, there's, there's a few people in New York City chasing after those things. You haven't noticed. But, you know, your family can become an idol because you put so much emphasis on it that if it, you know, your whole sense of well-being and security is based on how your family's going or what people think of you or uh, just having a good time or American patriotism, all these things that are not necessarily... In fact, that's, this, is, this is really important. Idols usually are not bad things in and of themselves. Money, sex, and power are not bad things of themselves, neither is family or the United States or any of these other things. It's the, it's the place that we give them in our hearts, in our lives. It's the place we give those things. And it's also, at times, the demandingness that creeps in, you know, that we take over the reins, and we're going to have these things on our own terms. And, and that's, that's a sign that this good thing has become like a God thing in your life. Now, another thing that Keller suggests is that you want to identify your nightmares, or, I mean, no, if you want to identify your idols, look at your nightmares. The things that you just are terrified of losing are probably have godlike power in your life. And those are the things that you need to think about in terms of, am I defiling myself or not? Now, I'll just give one example because it, it, plays, it plays out in my life here, especially starting a new job. You know, one of the ways we get money and power is usually through work and by excelling at work. And so there's this constant 
need to work more and more and more to guarantee that I'm going to have the finances I want or need and the influence and admiration, that's power, that I crave. And um, transitioning from my work in a church to the work I'm doing now, I, f- I just feel it really keenly. And one of the things about the city is not just that there's always more to do, there's always more to do, but, but there's always more that you should do. And, and that if you want to get ahead, you could just do more, you could just work more hours, you just, 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 just crank it up and be more and more determined. And so I think, how, how, how's that an example of when does that work become an idol? It's, it becomes an idol when, first of all, I just, I just think, it, think about it in a context that's ultimate. It's going to provide everything I need. It also becomes an idol when I compromise other things that I shouldn't. So I, I think when we were in the work series, we talked about keeping the Sabbath. So if I'm not willing to take 24 hours and take a break, it sounds really, it does sound kind of crazy here, doesn't it? Because it's all on all the time. And if I'm not willing to take that break, then I've crossed the line. I'm starting to let myself be polluted by my, my trust and my work to make my mark on the world. That's, that's kind of an example of, of what Daniel was saying. He said, I'm not going to be defiled. I'm not going to capitulate and, and participate in, this, in these replacement gods. And that's really the thing that sets him on a trajectory uh, for a whole different kind of life, a life where he thrives in the capital of the empire. And we see how the story turns out for him here in the last paragraph. It says, At the end of the time set by the king, uh, the chief official presented them, and the king talked to them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And they entered the king's service. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about, the king, about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in the whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Daniel was in the king's service for, or in the royal service for 70 years. And this is the beginning. And it really starts, it hinges on this decision to not defile himself. And then it says that he and his, his three friends, are, they just, they outshine everybody else. This is a very happy ending. It's a very happy ending. And I, I just want to reflect on a couple things about this with you as, as I close. So the key to thriving in exile is to make this decision, is to realize where you are. You're in exile in the capital of the empire, and it's to make this choice to not defile yourself. But when you make that choice, that I'm going to be self-aware enough to understand when things in my life are becoming like an idol, and I'm going to you know, throttle back on them and lean into God, it makes your story God's story. You know, the main character in this story really isn't Daniel. It's really God. It says at the beginning it was God that handed over Daniel's people to, the, to King Nebuchadnezzar. It says in the middle it was God that caused the official to have favor towards Daniel. God. And then at the end it says in the second to the last paragraph it says that God gave these guys ability, gave them uh, success, essentially. He, he honored their trust in him and he helped them do what they needed to do to thrive in the center of the empire. So by making the choice to not take things into his own hands, Daniel makes this God's story instead of his story. Personally, I find that a helpful reminder because I have this tendency to think of my life as a story about me. I'm in every scene. And um, it's easy to think of other people and God as supporting cast. And, and yet, at the end of the day, when I think about what's my life going to be about, what's it going to really accomplish when it's over, what, what, are, what, what is it going to have mattered or not, I think... 
having it hooked into God's story and really being about his story answers that question for me. The second thing that I would observe about Daniel's choice not to defile himself is that it was much more of a statement about faith than it was a, a religious work where he was earning God's favor or love. It was, it was a dilemma that he faced in terms of, who am I really going to be loyal to? as opposed to some sort of a moral lever that he was pulling to get God to bless him. You know, Daniel really made himself vulnerable by saying, I'm not going to eat the king's food. He, he really was. He, he was really putting himself in a position where if God didn't show up and, and do something, his life was probably literally over. But that's about faith. That's about trust. That's about a confidence in God to come through as opposed to a confidence to figure it out and make it work on our own. And, you know, whenever we see an ethical demand in the Bible, it, it's one of those things that we need to process a little bit. It's one, of the things, it's one of the things that we appreciate about LMCC is our emphasis on grace. It's the idea that we can't earn God's love or his blessing in our lives, that, you know, all of us in one way or another have bowed to idols, so to speak, at the language of the morning and we need to be forgiven, and we need God's power to help us change. And when we talk about God's active intervention in real time, sometimes we use the term grace. And so in a lot of ways, Daniel's decision not to defile himself was he's throwing himself on God's grace, on God's power to intervene in this very, very kind of scary, uncertain, tenuous situation. That's what his choice really was doing. And then uh, one last snippet about Daniel, and it's in chapter 2 of, of the book. Uh, the story of chapter 2 of Dan- and Daniel is that the king has a dream, and he decides that uh, to, to ferret out the, uh, the disingenuous counselors in his palace, he's not going to tell anybody what the dream is. That if, if, if a legitimate counselor will be able to first divine what the dream was, and then explain it. Then interpret it. So he's not going to tell anybody what his dream was, but he's going to demand first, tell me what the dream was, and then tell me what it means. And of course, nobody could do that. And uh, ironically enough, our man Daniel signed up for that. He said, hold on, king, I, I'll, I'll give this a shot. So he t- took on this very impossible assignment, risk of death, very high. And he has all his friends pray for him, and God gives him the dream and so forth. The content of the dream is really interesting because it talks about four empires. And then it talks about, it's a statue that represents four empires. And then there's a stone, not cut with human hands. It comes uh, from a great distance, and it smashes the empires, including Nebuchadnezzar. And then this stone keeps growing and growing and growing and growing. And many of us would believe that that stone represents this Messiah figure, this Jesus filled, that, filled those shoes, filled that role, whose empire is going to take a hold in the kingdoms of human beings, and it's going to grow and grow and grow, and eventually going to be the kingdom. And so what, what's all that about? It's the idea that by aligning ourselves with Jesus and his kingdom, we're really aligning ourselves with the empire that's going to truly win someday. And it's, it's, the time horizon is, is probably beyond most of our lifetimes, if not all of our lifetimes, but it's, it's, it's part of the idea is the way you survive in the empire is you align yourself with this empire from heaven that's bigger and outside of it and will eventually win in the end. To sum up the way I see Daniel relating to empire, it's, he does two things at once. And I heard this phrase from Dr. Lynn Sweet. He was a, he's a professor at Drew 
And he said, you know, we have to kiss the culture, and we have to tell the culture to kiss off. And that sounds like something they'd say in Brooklyn, doesn't it? Yeah. And he, he says, I think that's what we'd have to do with the empire. We have to kiss it, we have to invest in it, we have to help be, contribute to it and make it better and make it a place for people to flourish. But then there's going to be those places where we have to tell it to kiss off, where we have to say, I've now I've resolved not to defile myself. I, I can't go there. Um, I'm not sure what the consequences are going to be. Consequences of this decision are going to be, but this is a line that I have to draw. And I'm at the end of the day, if you really want to know, I'm just going to have to trust God to take care of me. But I can't go there. Let's pray. God, thank you that uh, you have worked with people who lived in sort of impossible underdog situations where. Just by definition of where they came from and what they believed, they were countercultural right out of the gate. And you've taken people like that, people like Daniel, and you've, you've given us a model of how we can thrive in the middle of empires, at the center of an empire. So God, I ask that for each of us, in one way or another, you would show us your power and your grace in such a way that we would be willing to walk away from those idols, those false gods, and we would be willing to cling to you, no matter what the cost is. And then as we make those decisions, those really hard decisions at times, not to defile ourselves, that you'll show up, that you will reveal yourself and your power to deliver in ways that we can see and then celebrate with one another. So God, we thank you for Daniel, we thank you for his faithfulness, and we ask that you will empower us to follow in his steps. In Jesus' name, amen.